This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm actor and comedian Griffin Newman. And I'm film critic David Sim. Together, we host Blank Check, a movie podcast where week by week we overanalyze directors' complete filmographies. In each new series, we discuss filmmakers who experience early success and are issued a series of blank checks by Hollywood to make their own crazy passion projects. Now, sometimes those checks clear, and sometimes they bounce, baby. We're joined each week by incredible guests, including actors, writers, and directors. So you can follow Blank Check with Griffin and David on Spotify for new episodes every Sunday. The year is 1982. And won't somebody look out for the poor unemployed male actors? The movie? Tootsie. everybody. Welcome to Unspooled. Unspooled. I am Paul Shear. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I'm so happy that the Clippers did such a great job in our playoffs. <laughs> Two wins. What an underdog. No one ever would have thought it, Amy. And and how are the Lakers doing this playoff season? Wow. You know, I think that's disrespectful to the star of, of last week's movie. I'm just going to say <laughs> that out there. But I will say, Paul, I am so happy for you that you got to go to a Clippers game and shoot the hot dog to Kenny. Amy, it was uh, a lifelong dream for me to shoot uh, hot meat uh, at people at the Staples Center. <laughs> I will tell you this. Um, I spoke to the guy uh, who helped organize it. And I said, oh, that was really fun. And he goes, we got in trouble. You uh, shot a hot dog into the 300 section. No one's ever done that before. It's just too high. It's just too high. <laughs> you got yelled at for shooting a hot dog to the section of people like me who can't afford expensive That's tickets. exactly what I said. They, they need that hot meat. <laughs> um, uh, and I got so many tweets from people like, you got it in the 300 section. People were psyched that it went that high because they never get shit. Anyway. Yeah, this, people in the floor section don't eat free hot dogs. Eggs, yeah, they don't want to eat that hot dog. And by the way, they do shove those hot dogs in there like a cannon. It, it was not a pretty picture. I had a great time. Thank you, Clippers organization. Thank you, Clippers. Thank you, Doc Rivers. Thank you, everybody on the Clippers team. Uh, but we are not here to talk about one of the best, most exciting uh, up-and-coming teams on the planet. We're here to talk about uh, a film from the AFI Top 100 Greatest Films of All Time list, the 2007 edition, to see if they really are as good as people say, do they hold up, and how they've influenced uh, the films that we watch now. Today we're going to be talking about uh, the Dustin Hoffman uh, film Tootsie, but last week we spoke about the Jack Nicholson classic Chinatown. We talked a lot about the idea of what would be the third in the trilogy. We heard Hadley's idea. We read a little bit about what the original idea that the screenwriter had, but a lot of people came to us online and said the third film in the trilogy is Roger Rabbit. 
I love that idea. Actually, Roger Rabbit came up so much this week. People yeah. are like, if you take out Chinatown, can we put Roger Rabbit in? To which I would say, given the short shrift of animation on this list, A. Uh, B, given the fact that that really was a technical achievement by Robert Zemeckis, this blending of live action and animation, it really was as foundational to where we've gone with, with animation as Snow White was kind of in a way, to be honest. Who Framed Roger Rabbit is one of my favorite movies of all time and probably one of my first memories of going to the movie theater. I say absolutely yes. That film is tremendous and it gets better the more I know about Los Angeles, the more I've learned about the characters they're referencing. That film is a masterpiece. Well, I was going to say, would you replace Chinatown with Who Framed Roger Rabbit? I think I know your answer. I feel like I will burn in several effigies for saying this, but yes. I do agree that Roger Rabbit holds a similar cinematic place on this list that Snow White does because it did something that really was groundbreaking at the time. And it does seem to grow in popularity uh, with every kind of passing year. It's true. I mean, Zemeckis has a lot of films that are really good that are not on the list. And he has one film that's kind of bad that is on the list. Right. Which we'll get to. It, I would trade Forrest Gump hands down for Back to the Future or oh my goodness. or uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. But between even those two, I would put Roger Rabbit on the list over Back to the Future. Uh- Wow. And I think Back to the Future is a perfect movie. Yeah. And yet, Who Framed Roger Rabbit just has so much history and personality. I need Although, to watch it I'm again. I'm getting into the double noir problem, so maybe I'm making a mistake. Well, and just for people out there, you know, I think in Amy and I's rejection of Chinatown from the list, you know, I think we talk a lot of different uh, things to play. Like, I, I think if you asked either one of us, we'd tell you it's, it's a great movie. It's hands down really well acted, really well directed. But we are trying to build a list or hopefully build a list at the end of this that we feel like is representative of many different styles of films. It's kind of the reason why we reject a bunch of Westerns, a bunch of, uh, you know, World War II films. Like, how many do you need on the list? We want to create a representative list uh, that just shows all types of genres and comedies and animation styles. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I've always been really interested in a critic is – you know, this idea that we are taught a film canon. Maybe this is because I came out of film school. Maybe this is because I spent way too many years going over to friends' houses and realizing everybody had the exact same DVD library. Yeah. But I'm really interested in the idea of what would happen if we chipped away at some of the things we think of as foundational and said, are they really? And so that's what I really like about what we do on the show is just the chipping away, the little question mark, a little bit of an undermining, the little bit of the pleasure that I've really gotten in the last few years as people come up to me and say they no longer like Goodfellas as much thanks to – Everything negative Amy, I've ever said about you it. you convinced <laughs> me a little bit when I listened to it because it's sort of like one of those things when you <laughs> pop a few holes in logic, you go, oh, that's interesting. Like you can look at a film in a, in a totally unique way. Yeah. I um, just think we have to shatter the canon a little bit in order to rebuild it stronger. And that's what I really like to do. And I will say to do that, I think you and I go a little bit harsh. Yeah. We, we are – I think it's about maybe one in three films we might say will kick off. And I think – on the Facebook poll, pretty much everything survives. Which well, I to which how are you gonna make room without killing, man? And I will say Am I, I mean, Thanos? I know you just you just <laughs> basically brought a Thanos mentality to the list. Half of the list stays, half of the list goes. It's just sort of the idea that when we are against a film, it doesn't mean that we're against it for quality. It just means like maybe just opening up slots on the list. Yeah, I prefer I just, double I'm, indemnity to this in the grand scheme of life. That's how I'm viewing it. Exactly. I just reject the idea that anything is a given. What if it's not a given? What if every film really had to fight 
What if we weren't just like told that film's important? How dare you? I know. Get in there a little bit more. And I also want to thank this week uh, someone who is doing the good fight in uh, in drawing, which is uh, Nelson Eggs, at Nelson Eggs uh, on Twitter, who designed a beautiful Guy Fieri uh, Flavortown poster. It's uh, based on Chinatown, but it's Guy Fieri starring with hot dog and wings. Uh, it's it's a beautiful piece. We have it up on our uh, on our Twitter, which is unspooled, uh, and it's you got to check it out. Uh, it's it's really it's masterful. And also, we have to say that like Kim Troxel, who does our beautiful posters oh, yes. every 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 single week. I got so many tweets when I tweeted out hers for Chinatown, saying like this might be the best one yet. Every week she tops herself. Honestly, they're unbelievable. But we have the best listeners out there, Kim. I, every week I open up that email and I go, oh, whoa, this is my new favorite one. <laughs> Including the one for this week, which, you know what number it is on the list? What number? Number 69. 69! Um, <laughs> you know, that's how we do on this show. Uh, but, you know, we talked about this last week. Tootsie is a film that I never really thought about the title before we started talking about this film. It really doesn't fit the film. At one point... Dabney Coleman, I think it may even be an ADR line, calls her Tootsie as she like walks off camera. He's like, all right, Tootsie. It's not a word that kind of feels like the perfect title, although we view it as the perfect title. But when you really think about it, it just isn't. Uh, so we asked you this week to give us a call and tell us what you think a better title for the film uh, Tootsie would be. So uh, let's take a listen. My alternate title for Tootsie would be Sydney Pollock's eyebrows deserve an Oscar. Dorsey, one half. Tootsie, better known as Hoffman, half woman. Uh, I think it's a no-brainer. Uh, could have been a crossover with uh, Aerosmith. Dude looks like a lady. Tootsie, the first Avenger. I feel like if they made Tootsie again uh, nowadays, it would probably be called something like Dottie which is the name that Jessica Lange's character calls Dustin Hoffman's character uh, as a nickname. I think a better title for the movie would be Lights of Drag, man. Hoffman, Hoff Woman. Holy shit. I love that. And it would be a really bold move to use the actor's name and not the character's name in it. Yeah, it's like the being John Malkovich. <laughs> um, I, I like, uh, you know, the very simple, like this is a movie that was made uh, in the 80s and I feel like this title would have been perfect for it. Life's a drag. That would, I'm, I'm actually shocked. Was that, a, if that wasn't a poster tagline, I will be, I will be stunned at the restraint. You know, I mean, before we continue, we did have the passing of a very important director this week. John Singleton uh, passed away. And, you know, his film, Boys in the Hood, is a is a movie that is incredibly influential and not on the list. Uh, and I was thinking about that today. That movie seems to me to capture such a unique part of L.A. It's such an interesting style of filmmaking in many respects similar to Rocky in the sense of, you know, someone who believed in their work so much got the chance to direct it and directed this really honest kind of shocking uh, portrayal that just went on to win all these Oscars. It's definitely a movie that I was thinking about this week that should be on this list. I agree. Also, John Singleton, I believe, was the youngest person to ever direct a studio film when yeah. he made that, which they, is another landmark. I think that record is about to be broken maybe by uh, Hannah Marks. Oh, right. She's about to direct a studio film, which is awesome for her. 
But like, wow. They offered him $100,000 to walk off Boys in the Hood. And he said no. That's incredible. Yeah. I mean, I really, when I hear about an artist with that much of a belief in themselves, that doesn't seem like self-headed. It's just self-fatuous or something. It yeah. seems like I know who I am and what I'm worth. That's tremendous. So I'm really surprised it's not on the list. And I'm wondering if it will be in the future. And this is exactly going back to what we've just been talking about. The reason why we need to open up this list to get these different types of films in. You know, you can't have them all. All right, let's get into it, Amy. The year is 1982. A Sony Walkman costs $129. The top song is I Love Rock and Roll by Joan Jett and the Blackhearts. Michael Jackson's Thriller album takes the nation by storm. Technology booms with the release of the Commodore 64 computer, as well as the very first CD player by Sony. Cats opens on Broadway. Cats. Alice Cats. Cats. Um, Alice Walker's book, The Color Purple, was published, and Tylenol capsules were laced with cyanide, and they killed seven people in Chicago, changing over-the-counter drug regulations forever. Movies to watch this year included E.T., the number one movie of the year, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, Rocky Three, and of course, today's movie, Tootsie, rated number 69 in 2007, down seven spots from its 1997 ranking of 62. And one more thing from 1982, the Equal Rights Amendment fell short of ratification, which means that women were not guaranteed to be paid an equal amount in the workplace, which makes it appropriate that Tootsie exists and is the number two movie of the year. (laughs) Amy, Tootsie, who's in it? What's it about? Tootsie stars a man I think we talk about all the time lately. Yeah. Dustin Hoffman, back again as failed actor Michael Dorsey, also playing successful female actor Dorothy Michaels. We got Terry Garr as his friend Sandy. We have Dabney Coleman, 80s villain extraordinaire, as director Ron Carlyle. We got Jessica Lange as soap actress Julie Nichols. And we have Bill Murray as Jeff Slater, playwright, a pretentious man, and the roommate of Dustin Hoffman. Tootsie is directed by Sidney Pollack. It's written by three guys, Larry Gilbert, Mary Shiskel, and Don McGuire. And uh, Sidney Pollack actually shows up in the film as Dustin Hoffman's agent, George Fields. Well, actually, one of the first parts that Sidney Pollack had done in like over two decades, he'd kind of stopped acting and was forced into this film really because Dustin Hoffman thought he would be so perfect for it. It's interesting. There's a lot of uncredited writers on this movie. Larry Gelbart, who co-created the television show MASH, said he didn't meet the other writers on this project until they were on stage together collecting their awards. And those are just the people that were credited. I mean, Elaine May was known to have done punch-up on this uh, film. Elaine May circling back again in the Dustin Hoffman life after The Graduate. Yeah, Elaine May, She, I think she created Bill Murray's character. I think she like worked a lot on the female characters at the soap opera. I think she did a ton of work on this movie, honestly. And this movie was actually a very contentious relationship between Dustin Hoffman and Sidney Pollack because on the weekends they would both go back to their, you know, homes and work on the script all weekend and then come back together and have very different ways of wanting to make this film. Are you saying that Dustin Hoffman was difficult to somebody he was working with? I mean, well, let's even go back (laughs) a couple of feet here. Um, Did you know that Sidney Pollack, not the first choice to be a director of this film. You know, this film actually was going to be directed by Hal Ashby. Of Harold and Maude. Of Harold and Maude. And the studio basically said, we're going to sue you because he wouldn't be available for his post-production supervision of another film he was doing. But I did find a screen test with Hal Ashby and Dustin Hoffman uh, as Dustin Hoffman was kind of 
uh, trying out his character for the film. What? And it's a little bit different. So in the film, uh, Dorothy Michaels has a Southern accent. Um, in this clip, she doesn't. This is just an interview between Hal Ashby and Dustin Hoffman as he is dressed as Dorothy Michaels. Take a listen. And uh, your age, please? Excuse me, I have a little laryngitis. Well, that's okay. It's a nice <clears throat> quality, actually. Thank you. I'm 46. 46. Yeah. And uh, you understand the part uh, on the series is for a head nurse. Yes. A woman of some experience and authority. Yes, that's what my agent said. Yes. Now, have you ever done a soap? No, I haven't. I, I, I've been outside of the area for the last 10 years doing, doing? regional theater. Oh, so you've never so done So you can kind of just hear it. It sounds very much like Dustin Hoffman, just softer spoken. And I do appreciate that it's soft and not falsetto. Yeah, well, I think he was trying to figure out how the voice would work. And when he found out the idea that it could sound a little bit Southern, it would make his voice a little bit lighter. And that's how he came to the idea, because the character wasn't written as a, a, a Southern belle. It was just, you know, it was trying to to find the best way to do this character. And so Dustin Hoffman got so involved in this character that there's legends that, you know, if you wanted to tell Dustin Hoffman bad news, you'd wait until he was dressed as Dorothy Michaels, that, you know, to prepare for this role, he went as his daughter's aunt to a school function and he passed the smell test there. You know, the teachers thought he was actually his daughter's aunt. Um, this was a movie that was going to be written for Buddy Hackett. Uh, and then it was going to go to Peter Sellers and Michael Caine and Dustin Hoffman's production company came uh, in contact with it and then really took ownership of it. So I think throughout the entire film, you really are feeling an actor owning every aspect of this film. Yeah, I mean, there's this really interesting parallel, right? Like this is a movie about an actor who will do anything played by an actor who will famously kind of do anything. I mean... What's interesting about this moment in, like, Dustin Hoffman's career is that he's really interested in gender roles, which I find kind of fascinating because I don't think of Dustin Hoffman as the most enlightened guy mm. uh, for a lot of reasons that you can Google. But, um, you know, he had just done Kramer versus Kramer, which was his movie about, like, can a man be a mother to a boy as good as a mother can be, you know? And his answer was yes. You know, she'll be right. he'll be great. He'll be great. And then he kind of segues from there to this project. He's really interested in who he would be if he wasn't Dustin Hoffman, it feels like. Who he would be if he had been born a woman, which I think was kind of his really basic ground starting point. If I was a woman, what kind of woman would I be? I love this movie. Like, in a way that I've forgotten how good it was. And I sat down and just was laughing and enjoying it the whole way through. But the one thing that jumped out at me, and I know that maybe people are going to jump on me for saying this, is there's a little bit of mansplaining in it to a certain extent because it's sort of like it takes a man as a woman to, like, make people <laughs> enlightened about how hard it is to be a woman. I mean, there is a little bit of that. I couldn't help but notice, like, you know, when a man gets in there, he can kind of take over and, and get the cover of these magazines and reinvent the soap opera. I love this movie. I'm not saying anything bad about it, but it is, it's an interesting perspective because it's very much, I think, a feminist piece, but as a man being, uh, you know, embodying a woman to give the ideals of feminism, which I just think is worthy of just putting out there in the ether. 
I do not disagree. I mean, this is a movie. Pollock has said that Tootsie is his, quote, love letter to women, Mm -hmm. which I'm sort of like, okay. You know, I I believe it is and I believe it isn't. You know, I'm not mad at this movie for what I'm about to say. But I will say I think this movie is a really interesting example of noble intentions gone awry. This is a movie that's like, did you know that women in the workplace are sexually harassed? Did you know that their bosses pinch their asses all the time and talk about them behind their back and are determined to kiss all of them and, you know, belittle them here and there and don't take them seriously as actors, don't want to hear their motivation. I mean, how interesting is it that this is a scene where Dustin Hoffman in character as Dorothy Michaels is trying to ask a director for his motivation, a thing that happens a lot to Faye Dunaway in Chinatown that we just talked about and is getting overlooked, ignored. Nobody wants to hear that this actress wants help. And so... Enter Dustin Hoffman's Dorothy Michaels into the workplace, and while all the women are getting pinched on the ass and basically dealing with it, he takes a stand and says, being pinched on the ass is wrong. Let me explain to you that it is. Yeah, and I think that, you know, maybe this is the only movie that can get made that says this at this moment. You know, sometimes the best way to get a message through is to kind of – through conventional means, and then you kind of think about it as you leave. And and I still think that a lot of the theories hold up, and I think that there is a truthfulness to his character of Dorothy Michaels that actually makes all of it work. In Mrs. Doubtfire, and I, I think you have to look at the parallels here a little bit, you know, I think it's very much like Robin Williams wanting to be with his kids. And I don't think, I don't think he's becoming Mrs. Doubtfire as much as uh, Dustin Hoffman is becoming... Dorothy, if that makes sense. You know, I think the intention behind this movie is to say that he has fallen so much into this role that he he's taking all the bad parts of being a man, the you know, that he is opinionated, that he's a perfectionist, and and he's kind of using them to empower the women around him. Yeah, I mean, here's what we know about Michael Dorsey, right? Like, he takes himself very seriously as an actor. You know, he's having a lot of problems getting cast um, mm-hmm. because he's so difficult. Like, if he doesn't believe that his tomato in a commercial should walk around, he will not move around as a tomato. Right. If he doesn't believe that his, you know... When he's having his death scene and that he couldn't move to the center stage, but just because people couldn't see him, he's on stage. He's he's set in his ways. Exactly. He is a guy who believes that he's always right and he's always fighting, and it's to the detriment of his career. His agent basically tells him he's unhirable, not because of his talent, but because he's a jerk. And when he's in character as Dorothy, he's sort of forced to take criticism because he's in character as a person who takes some criticism. Until he basically goes, no, no, I'll just be myself as Dorothy (laughs) and then gets great critical acclaim. I mean, the reason why he becomes successful is because he doesn't say the script. He makes his own choices. He bucks the system. Like the character doesn't learn very much. Like – it's just the delivery system of it is different. Am I right or am I being too harsh on it? And again, I love yeah. this movie. I'm enjoying it. I'm just kind of breaking it down. You're right. You're right. It's sort of like a character who takes a trip to another country mm-hmm. and he learns a lot about like the proper way to make pasta or something. And then they come home and they're still probably making SpaghettiOs. Right. And he's like, oh, this pasta is great. I really understand flavor and garlic now. I've been to Flavortown. <laughs> and then he's like... Ah, this can's fine, though, day to day. I'll be all right. Hey, here's a pop quiz, Hotshot. How many pieces of pizza do you think the average American will eat a year? Think of a number? Think of a number? All right, now I'll tell you the truth. It is 46. And if you think that number is way too low, you are probably the kind of person who really could use an uni. 
Let me tell you what an uni is. You know how like pizza that you get from a really good place is kind of burnt and crisp and lovely and melty and everything all at once? That's what happens when you cook a pizza in a really, really high heat oven. And that is what an uni oven is. It is a pizza oven that you can bring into your house and it heats your pizza up to 932 degrees. Now, let me describe this, what this little thing looks like, because it's amazing. It's like the kind of thing you can put in your backyard. You can cook with it outdoors. If you're the person who's sort of bored with making hot dogs and hamburgers all summer, this is your new summer tool. It looks sort of like a spaceship with four legs. It's this cool little dome. And in this dome, you put in your dough. It's hot and ready in less than 15 minutes because this thing is so hot, it just bakes. Boom. There you go. And if you want to put a steak in there, yeah, do that. And now, here's the cool thing about the Uni. Like, not only can you get restaurant-quality pizza in your own backyard, it's portable. It flips up, goes into a little case. It's really lightweight. So you can bring quality pizza to your friends' backyards and be, like, the coolest person at every backyard all summer with your portable little pizza oven. So if you want the power of flame in your own backyard— 932 degrees of flame. What you want to do is you want to go to uni.com and enter the code unspooled for 10% off your purchase. That's uni, O-O-N-I.com to get your Unicoda, your Uni3, or your Unipro for 10% off when you enter unspooled at the checkout. And also, you can get fast free shipping for all orders over $100. So uni.com, O-O-N-I.com, promo code unspooled, and eat way more than 46 slices of pizza this year. Eat 46 pizzas a year. Do whatever you want. Go crazy. I'd argue that whenever you have actors playing within the world of showbiz, it's always so fun. I feel like Sidney Pollack just comes alive as this agent. He's so good. Dabney Coleman as a director is great. I feel like it's something that everybody is so fresh and in touch with. And I was actually watching some of the deleted scenes from the movie, and I wanted to play this one scene that I just thought was another, like, a little bit of icing on the cake. Because the movie moves very quickly. Like, basically, his agent's like, no one will hire you. You're too difficult. Smash cut to he's walking down the street as Dorothy Michaels. You don't, there's no deliberation. He's not asking anybody. And I thought that was actually so refreshing from a filmmaking standpoint. It's like, boom, we're into it. And we'll get that other part later. And But I also love that it's a world in which not many even people question him. Like, Bill Murray's like, no, man, you're doing, that's too crazy. No one basically says, like, what you're doing is insane. They're like, yeah, you got to get, you got to get paid. You got to work. And I love that that that's the acceptance of it. Like, I think that that is a true statement in this world. He's not hurting anybody. And this deleted scene, I thought, was another great moment that I think just adds to the breaking point of this character. It's, um, he's at his restaurant with Bill Murray, and he notices that an old girlfriend is at a table. And he's like, please take the table. Please take the table. And Bill Murray's like, I can't, I can't. So he's forced to be the waiter to his old girlfriend. And this is kind of um, into the scene. She's with uh, a man that's her husband and her child. And here we go. You know who you are. Uh, oh, no! this is Chucky. Uh, he's very tired. <laughs> you look great. Oh, isn't it great about Terry Bishop? He's doing so well. Yeah, he's uh, making a lot of money on a soap. Uh... Are you still roommates? No, I haven't seen him in years. Oh, that's that's great. <laughs> Are you married? No, I share uh, the apartment with an uh, unsuccessful playwright. He's a waiter here, too. <laughs> well, great. You look wonderful. You haven't changed at all. I, I mean, facially, you, you just look great. <laughs> I mean, that is like every ex-girlfriend's dream scene. It's sort of like if the end of La La Land went really, really wrong. Right, right, right. Um. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I'm kind of happy when Michael Mort Dorsey is miserable. Right. Because, like, here's what we know of who he is at the very beginning. I mean, we keep being told he's a great actor, mm-hmm. which 
I'm going to flag. Like, here's a scene of him attempting to act. I wrote this down. I said, is he a good actor? I don't know. I feel like he's passionate, but I don't know if he's a good actor. And it's it's a fine line because I don't... I was watching. I was like, I don't know what you're trying to tell me here. Exactly. I mean, because what we get in this opening montage is really kind of crazy, right? We're getting mm-hmm. these back and forth between like him auditioning and being rejected and then him leading classes of other actors and waxing philosophical as though he knows exactly what is right for them. And often it's almost playing off of what just happened before that we see is clearly not working. You know, yeah. well, here, here's the famous exchange of him not getting a job. Not Kevin's wife. Thanks very much, Mr. Dorsey. We need someone a little older. We're looking for someone a little younger. They have dinner. Oh, can I just start again? I just, I, I, I want to, I didn't get kicked off right. No, no, Reed was fine. Reed was fine. You're just the wrong height. Oh, I can be taller. No, no, you don't understand. You don't understand. We're looking for somebody shorter. Oh, well, look, I don't, I don't have to be, I don't have to be this tall. See, I, I'm wearing lifts. I can be shorter. I know, but really, we're looking for somebody different. I can be different. We're looking for somebody else, okay? And so from there, we go to him, like, giving lectures, giving, telling people things like, always take a job, always take a job, right yeah. after we've seen him quit. We see him be like, figure out, you know, what the playwright wants and do it their way. And then you see him give this insane line reading right here. Oh, they were doing it for dough the same as everybody does it for dough. But the question is in the last analysis. What were they doing for dough? You and me, Fado, we were advancing our free little non-Prussian careers. So when all hell broke loose and the Germans started running out of soap and figured, what the hell, we might as well cook up Mrs. Greenwald. Who the hell do you think stopped them? I mean, question. Is he making fun of Al Pacino or something? Like, what is happening? Well, Al Pacino wasn't like that in 1982. (laughs) So it would be a very uh, forward thinking uh, impression. You know... I think what they're trying to show is he doesn't practice what he preaches, right? And if he listened to his own advice, he'd be in a better spot. And I think there's a lot of people like that who he loves to like wax philosophically, but he won't actually take his own advice. And I think his advice would be like, just move downstage. Just read the part. Don't make a meal out of it. And, you know, he is talented. He is good. We're told that. You know, people say like, they don't tell you you're a bad actor. They say you're a bad person and uh, and you're a difficult person. And... Um, I think whenever you're trying to show acting in a movie, it's just hard. It's hard to show good acting in a movie. It's so much better to show bad acting or easier to show bad acting. And it's like you're watching someone audition, which is the least glamorous, ungraceful thing ever. And and I think like auditioning is so humiliating. And it's have you had bad auditions? Of course, of course. And and even my best auditions aren't good performances. It's a it's a camera pointed at you in a room you're reading with people who are not actors you're not even able to touch them it's like you're acting with someone behind a, a glass you're not connecting with them and, and and the whole idea is you're supposed to show what you can do but the truth is like acting whether on stage but more primarily for film and tv you're not doing it on the first take you know you're rehearsing you're finding little moments you know and all that to say is I don't know whether he's a good or bad actor, but I think they're trying to let you know, like, he's good, but just difficult. I mean, it does feel real. I mean, Dustin Hoffman, this sort of was his life. He wasn't famous till he was really late. And I think that chip on his shoulder is always going to be there. Yeah. Honestly. And so he, he was getting these same complaints. You know, he's too small. He's not a leading man. He's, you know, he's, you know, when The Graduate came out, we talked about this as well. Like, 
people thought it was a joke. They don't, but this guy is a leading man, you know? And, and, and um, back to this idea that actors playing actors sometimes, they can bring their truest selves. They've been in these positions. Yeah, although, I mean, can I say, when he runs to confront his agent fairly soon after this, when he realizes he doesn't get the Iceman cometh, why on earth do they pick this music for what could be a dramatic scene? I, I gotta see somebody. Don't do anything rash. Will he be back? Here I go. I'm I mean, angry. I'm angry. Gotta go run and be angry at someone about something that my life is getting destroyed over. I mean, Boy, it's a am very, I mad. <laughs> it's a very, like, 80s soundtrack that I kind of love. It's like 80s transitional music. Like, in movies like this, like, like, it's like, it's very, I know, like, it's a comedy movie. And this movie does try very much to be like, it's a comedy. Like, you know. It is the music of being like, I swear we're a comedy. Even though Dustin Hoffman's saying I'm not. Like, even though Dustin Hoffman's like, this is a drama. I mean, that's what, Sidney Pollack said he would only direct this movie if he got final cut and there's a lot of trend tension and trouble between these two i found this behind the scenes doc of tootsie that is very bad quality and i'm always amazed at how honest people are in the 80s or in the 70s about how they worked with each other i think dust and i are both trying very hard and we occasionally are working across purposes sometimes it looks pretty grim sometimes it looks like we're going to shut down and quit so far, we've, we've managed to get it done. Legally, I have control of the picture, but that's only legally. I mean, that doesn't mean that I don't owe him a lot morally, which I do, number one. And number two, you can't make an act to do anything. I can't whip him over the head with a whip and make him do a scene my way if he doesn't believe in it. By the same token, I can't, I can't direct a scene that I don't believe in either. And sometimes, both things have happened where he just doesn't want to do it the way I want it to be done and I just refuse to do it the way he would prefer it to be done. And then we go in his trailer or my trailer and scream at each other for an hour and finally come out and do it my way. Okay, a few things. Yeah. One, the music in that is insane. I was just going to say better better dramatic music then. <laughs> Two, there's chickens in the background that yes. you can hear. I think that's when they were shooting uh, the sequence where they go to Jessica Lange's uh, house. Yeah. And three, they edited part of his talk over him and Dustin solemnly painting a turtle. What is happening in the 80s? I mean, it's so crazy, but it's such a great point of view. Like, I mean, this is a movie that had a lot of tension and a lot of strife on set, and it came... Out probably was something that's better for both of these people's involvement. I think what you just said about Dustin Hoffman wanting it to be a drama, Sidney Pollack kind of leaning into the comedy, it finds this really nice balance uh, where it's light, but it's saying something. It, it's funny enough that you don't question some of the logic of it, you know, and I think it it helps. I think if it was too much of a drama, this wouldn't be a classic. I don't think it would be making the, the money it made. And I think if it was too much of a comedy, it would feel... Um, for lack of a better example, like bosom buddies, it would you know it, it would have no weight to it, and I and I feel like they do find this middle ground. Uh, even though I think there are some issues with the character that I have issues with, like you would think in this movie he would come to realize, like oh Terry Gar is the person I should be with, like she actually cares about me for me, but he doesn't. Like he just goes after Jessica Lang, and like his solution for Jessica Lang to be better is just to be with him. Uh, you know, there like there are those issues. Um, uh, but <laughs> yeah, Terry Gar gets done a little dirty in this movie. Can we be real about that? Oh, absolutely. And she's 
so fantastic in this movie, but she definitely gets the wrong end of the stick on this. I mean, you don't even really know how he feels about her. Like, she yeah, just... they're supposedly best friends, but the movie's kind of making fun of her from the get-go as a really theatrical, dramatic actress, which I like. I think she does a really good job of playing an actress. You yeah. know, she's not trying to play, like, a nice, normal, sane person. You know, she laughs too loud. She takes up too much space. She gives awkward speeches. Things I really love about her. And then... In order to cover up a lie, which is that he has been caught trying on her clothes, he decides he's going to sleep with her. And it's one of those, to me, awkward Dustin Hoffman sex scenes TM that I guess right. he specializes in. I have sex with me. Am I not incredibly sexy right now? That women just are like, yes. <laughs> uh, and so she does. And so he has sex with her. So he doesn't have to tell her he just wanted to try on her clothes because he stole a part from her. Well, he couldn't tell her that. I mean, their whole relationship. I mean, he basically... You know, I think that's a cardinal sin of the actor to be like, what, what, like, what are you auditioning for? I'm going to go in and do it too. Like, if you are going to do that, but you have to do it a little bit like secretly. I mean, I was talking to Don Cheadle. Yeah, I did this show with him, Black Monday. And he told the story that when he first came to LA, he lived with a bunch of guys. And whenever one of them would get an audition, they would all kind of bum rush the audition because he would. they would all inevitably share the sides. And they'd all go in and force themselves to audition, even though they didn't have appointments. The thought being, well, if four of us audition, the chances are better that one of us gets it. And if one of us gets it, then they get to pay the rent. Um, but, you know, that I think oftentimes actors uh, covet, you know, oh, I'm auditioning for this. I'm keeping it quiet. I don't want more Their people to get in. Yeah, I mean, of course, uh, you know. Okay, so it's easier for him to, to have sex with Yes. I mean, I don't think, yeah. I mean, yes. In that moment, I, mean, I think he really did a service. I like how she's like... Just be honest with me and tell me you're going to be a jerk. And he's like, "Yes, I'm. I'm not. I'm not going to do that at all. Actually, I'm just going to, you know." Yeah. And the movie sort of does kind of a mean thing, where it's like, "Well, Terry Gark deserves it because she keeps saying that Dorothy is fat. But like, she keeps saying Dorothy's fat, so she gets what's coming to her." It's such a funny game, too. Like, he really takes offense to <laughs> Dorothy is fat. Speaking of people who just like were like, "Oh, I will tell you what happened." Did you read? There's this Terry Gar interview that she gives to the AV Club just a few years ago, and uh-huh. it's basically an interview where, in the middle of it, she says, "I can say this now because Sydney isn't with us anymore." Oh wow, what is it? But she talks about how you know, in a lot of these movies that she was in in the early '80s, particularly this, that people were afraid of actually writing a female character who was, as she says, smart, funny, or witty. So they make them into these doormat characters. And that she really didn't get a lot of parts that she felt like let her be who she was. Here's what she says about Tootsie. You know, it was the same thing with Tootsie. It was about a man doing a woman's work so that they see that women's work is really pretty easy. It's almost this way Mm. of like being like, ah, uh, you're complaining about being home with the babies. Look, Mr. Mom did it. She's in Mr. Mom. Right, right, right. So it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. Um, She says... Women are not taken seriously. They put a man in a dress and he's supposed to know how what it feels like to be a woman. But of course he doesn't. I think what Dustin says is, I realize now how important it is for a woman to be pretty. Well, that's all. Like, you realize? You know, she says, don't quote me. Actually, quote me. Well, it's funny because Dustin Hoffman, one of his takeaways from the movie is he's like, I realized that I would never have approached me as a woman and all the interesting conversations I might have missed out on by not talking to, like, quote unquote, like, ugly women. It's like, that's like, hold on <laughs> That's the takeaway? Uh, yeah, like a couple years ago, they found this like outtake interview he did for the Criterion release of this yeah. where he starts talking about like, oh, nobody, I wouldn't have hit on me. And he cries a little bit and everybody's like, Dustin Hoffman is so woke now. And you're like, no, he's not. Like he he's, he realized he wouldn't hit on himself. And I guess his character is a little bit of a lech in the movie too because he's kind of hitting on like multiple women at this like birthday party. 
Um, but that's a little bit of a question mark too. I mean, his character is totally alleged. Yeah, it's uh, and it, I guess. I, I mean, his character realizes he's alleged sort of because the same excuse he gives for not wanting to hurt Terry Gar's feelings mm-hmm. is what like Dabney Coleman gives for not wanting to hurt Jessica Lange's feelings, like word for word. And right. he's like, okay. Yeah, he I really does take that word for word thing. A bit like, of a lich. By the way, can I just say that Terry Gar went even harder on that interview? I've like missed like the meanest part of it or oh, yeah, the no, most accurate part. Yeah. I don't want to characterize as mean. She just said flat out that that Tootsie was made by sexist men. And the AV Club is like, you thought he was sexist? And she says, yeah, I think so, talking about Sydney. Yeah. He just wanted the beautiful, blonde, cute Shiksa girls to be nice and shut the fuck up. To that point, I mean, we've already talked about it a little bit. I, I think that she's got a point because that character doesn't really get any real comeuppance or conclusion. I would argue that even uh, Gene Davis, who's it's her first movie, she's it's only notable that it's Gina Davis because we know Gina Davis. But she really does nothing in the film. But I did think... Yeah, I mean, Gina Davis got the role of the actress who's just in her underwear a lot and also makes out with the director because they looked at her Victoria's Secret catalog. She was a Victoria's Secret model. Oh, yeah. Yeah, oh, Gina wow. Davis was a model back then. Like one of Actually, one of Gina Davis's first jobs was she was a mannequin in store windows where she just had to be really, really still. By the way, she looks a little bit like the first actress who played mannequin, not Kim Cattrall, but the oh, other one. She does, yeah. yeah. But yeah, then she posed for like Victoria's Secret, and then they saw this like beautiful photo of her, and that's why they cast her for Tootsie. And by the way, she was so inexperienced that she didn't realize that you didn't need to come to set every day like she thought it was like school and she would show up every day until she had to work and she'd just be sitting there next to Sydney Pollack and then she realized like oh I don't need to be here all the time that's I, the work ethic that makes you a real actress yeah I mean but by the way you learn so much I think by watching when the pressure's not on you um but I wanted to talk about Jessica Lange and I wanted to hear your opinion about Jessica Lange because I thought that that character actually was more well-rounded than I thought. I felt like she was smart. I felt like she had a definite point of view. Yes, she was in a bad relationship, but she wasn't ditzy or she wasn't like frothy. Like she didn't seem like what you would imagine that character in the first draft would be. Yeah, I mean, I think that character actually has a lot of depth that maybe Dustin Hoffman doesn't see, but that Jessica Lange sees. Yeah. I think that that's pretty fair. Like, she comes in like this adorable blonde goddess, and she has this Marilyn Monroe voice. I mean, to me, I feel like she's doing a deadpan vocal Marilyn Monroe yeah. imitation. You know, breathy, kind of sweet, kind of goofy, saying really funny, smart, absurdist, dumb things that don't sound smart, but they are smart. Right. She's obviously living an interesting life. It's kind of interesting that she is what a new woman is, and that Dustin Hoffman's version of a woman is very old school. Like, he's worried that somebody will call his apartment and hear a man's voice. Yes. And that people will think that Dorothy is a fallen woman or something. But Jessica Lang is very openly like a single mom with a baby and without a dad who ever gets revealed. And that re- and the reveal that she's a single mom I thought was actually really beautifully done because you can tell she's hiding it, which I think makes her a little bit more complex, her drinking the wine. That night that they have at her house when he's standing up Terry Gar, I just feel like you understand this character. And, and she becomes a lot richer and maybe that's maybe that's Elaine May injecting this smart character she's not very funny I mean she's not a funny character in the movie she's not playing a bad actress she's she's just playing an actress in a show and um, where everybody else around her are slightly caricatures I mean even Dabney Coleman to a certain extent like she seems to be really grounded and real yeah I mean I think that's kind of the thing is of the people on set 
the men are all caricatures. Mm-hmm. Honestly, they're like villain caricatures. Really, yeah. it's they're. This movie is about a man being slightly nicer as a woman fighting the ultimate patriarchy. You mm-hmm. know, dudes who are in charge and bossy and mean and sexist. I mean, these guys honestly couldn't be worse. Like, is there an extra character trait that Dabney Coleman could have to be worse? Like, Well, I think that Dabney Coleman actually is a little bit lighter than you normally see him. In a way, like, I feel like he's playing it real and not heightened. But you know, it's not that, as bad as nine to five. You're right. That's what. That's yeah. kind of what I think I'm looking at. And I think Dabney Coleman ha- had, you know, kind of made a career out of playing a, a much bigger, angrier kind of character. I mean, he wasn't even really supposed to play the director. He was supposed to play the agent. And then Sidney Pollack, when he took over the agent part, didn't want to lose him, so he convinced him to do that part. And it, it's you get a lot from his swagger, even his the way he smokes and the way he wears that like safari jacket, that kind of tightly cropped safari jacket. I think tells you a lot about him. And I think that's why this movie works because maybe the the intention with some of these characters are rooted in drama, not in over-the-top comedy. And I think an over-the-top comedy, I think, would dilute what's happening here a little bit. That's why this movie is nominated for a fuckload of Academy Awards. I mean, this is crazy. This movie is up for 10 Academy Awards. I mean, no comedy, no comedy is up for that. No, I mean, it only wins one, but right. it's up for 10. Like- and, and it's Jessica Lange who wins, which is... Again, interesting because it is a great character. She's up against Terry Gar, but it is. It just—I I mean, we know this. The comedy is not welcome in in the circles of highfalutin, you know, accolades. It just—it's always pushed off to the side. I know. I wonder. I wonder if part of that reception was because it, people felt like it had such a valuable social message that it balanced it out. You know, especially in the year that, that you're it wasn't talking like about. game yeah. night, right? Well, and also there's just something happening this year, right? Because in the same Oscar year, you've got John Lithgow uh, in The World According to Garp playing a football player who transitions and and Mm. becomes Roberta. You also have, I think, Victoria – Victor Victoria is out this year. There's something happening where our films in this moment were trying to discuss gender in in a really interesting way. Whereas I feel like now we're in a moment of gender where it's like all – we're going to solve the problems of feminism by making a female action hero who's the most powerful person in the universe over and over and over and over again. Right. It's just sort of putting a woman in the role that's closely associated with like a male stereotype. But Uh. isn't, I mean, because I I don't know if I would even say that we've like solved any of the problems of feminism since like 1982, but it is interesting that we are trying in different mutations. Well, Although Tootsie doesn't even say the word feminism, so. No, I mean. Um, it says liberated. But I mean, the character is getting success in the very limited time. She's on many covers of magazines. I would argue that many of these magazines would be like, wait, you can't be on multiple covers at the same time. But uh, it seems like one photo shoot. Um, yeah, she's sort of on contradictory ones. She's on like Cosmo, which is all sex yeah. tips usually. Yeah. And then she's on like Ms. Ms. Magazine, yeah. you know, like the feminist magazine. She also was on a magazine cover with Andy Warhol. And I thought to myself, wow, how does Andy Warhol go – yeah, I'll do this cameo in a Dustin Hoffman film. Pretended to be on a TV guide. Yes, which was like pop art meets pop star or like it, like it's a weird thing. And I realized that uh, I think the reason why was because the producers hired uh, Holly Woodlawn, a well-known transgender Puerto Rican actress and uh, someone who worked very much with Andy Warhol to coach Dustin Hoffman in the art of being a man who feels and acts like a woman. So I feel like there might have been this connection where they may have said to Holly, like, can you maybe put in a word and get him to do the film? Because it was such an odd appearance. 
to have him there. And I didn't know why. I、yeah. mean, that's what, that's my guess. It's super odd. And you know what? I mean, I think a lot of times when a movie is about women and feminism, I think it's really about men and not in a bad way.、Mm-hmm. But what I think Tootsie is actually to me really about more than anything is about Dustin Hoffman realizing that being a man doesn't mean having to be like an asshole. Like a、right. screaming, loud, like stubborn, ass pinching guy, that there's a way of walking through the world as a human being that he might enjoy better if he learned how to try it by going to the extreme. Now that you say that, and after I've come after the, the film a little bit in the top, the idea that you see him with Charles Durning, a character that falls in love with Dorothy Michaels, asks Dorothy to marry him, and he. Blows him off.、Um, the way he approaches him in the bar at the end when he's kind of making amends. And, and I think the way he approaches Jessica Lang is a little uncharacteristic of his character. A, I think to go back and even apologize. And, you know, those two scenes are supposed to tell us a lot about his character. Whether or not they're successful, you can put a question mark to. But I do think they're supposed to show you, like, He has changed and maybe he has taken some of this. And I don't want to use this term, but tell me, Amy, if I'm wrong, like the softness of a woman to couch what he wants to say and feel. Because I, I, don't, like, I don't think that softness is viewed badly here, but I think it, like, it allows him to be more accepted if he is not just as abrasive as he normally is. But he's actually thinking about people's feelings, I think.、Mm-hmm. He's actually. Empathizing in a way that I don't think he was doing at the beginning. You're right. He's not looking at himself as an actor and getting accolades as an actor and trying to get the next part. He's like, no, I've hurt you because I was trying to forward. Yeah, you're right. And I think the end game of it is just to have the connection. Like, he didn't need to have that moment with Charles Durning、uh, at the end of the film, but he does have it. And I think you see him respect that character. And I think that that's interesting. I think whenever they put the baby in his hands, they're trying to show you that too. Yeah, because he's so disinterested in babies、yeah. at the beginning. And then he learns that babies are kind of. And he's bringing、cute. a baby to a late night birthday party. I mean, he's doing that after he wraps up at the restaurant and there's a baby there. Come on, man. <laughs> Bad parenting. I mean, I like the scenes with Charles Durning, to be honest, a、mm, lot. Oh, because, you know, I mean, Charles Durning is A, like,、uh, I think a hell of an actor, to be honest. Oh, absolutely. Like, this is a part that didn't have to be that good. Like, I'm the, the dad of Jessica Lang. I come in, I have a crush on him, I propose. You know, it, it could be a doofus part. And、mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of humanity in it. Like, they do make the character super sexist, I think, as a way of being like, don't feel too bad、right. when he gets his heart broken. But, like, oh, here, let's, let's listen to a little bit of just Charles Durning talking. Yes, I think there's something I'd better say. There's something I want to say, too. Wouldn't it be funny if we both wanted to say the same thing? It would be hilarious, but I don't think what I have to say is what you have to say. Well, mine's pretty simple. I'm not too good with words anyway. You know, I only took two pictures of my whole life my high school graduation and my wedding. And my wife was standing next to me in both of them. Now, I never thought I'd want anybody to fill her place. All that changed last weekend. Lester? Leslie. Leslie? Don't interrupt. I gotta do this in one go, I won't get through it. I know this is kind of quick, but that's how I am. Never did believe in not getting down to it. Oh, oh. Don't say anything now. Oh, Just, no.、Uh, I know it's fast. But See, I don't. Take some time to think about it. Please. And if the answer is no, well, at least I'll feel you took me seriously enough to think about it. Would you, would you mind, Pierre? But I just need to be alone. I'd like to start thinking it over as soon as possible. <laughs> I mean, like, he's not 
a great guy, but he's not the worst guy. He's a complicated man, he's and he's being man, a little vulnerable lonely, here. Yeah. And you know who he reminds me more than yeah. anything in that scene is actually Buddy Epson. Uh, he reminds uh-huh. me of when Buddy Epson shows up in Breakfast at Tiffany's as like the guy who used to be married to Audrey Hepburn back when she was a farm girl. And Never you're saw like, it. what? Never saw it. Okay, putting a pin in that uh, for everybody who has seen it. <laughs> no, like, but keep on talking. Yeah. I'm just, yeah. yeah, there is something about like this man who you know isn't right for the heroine, who is not perfect, mm-hmm. and yet like ha- brings a lot of humanity to it. And so, you know, Charles Durning, by the way, like Charles Durning basically lived saving Private Ryan. Wow. I don't know if you knew that. Like no. he was at D-Day. He was the only person in his army unit to survive. And then get this. He comes back to the States. He already wanted to be an actor. Like, he wanted to be an actor since he saw King Kong, you know. And he's just this ordinary guy. Like, he grew up in a giant family. Half of his siblings died of smallpox when he was a kid. He gets back. He goes to New York. And he begins to teach dancing at the Fred Astaire Dancing Studio. And that is why when he dances in this movie, he's actually pretty good. Every character is doing something. I mean, I even like uh, Lynn Thigpen, who... Uh, was the chief on Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego. She kind of plays the on-set director. Um, but yeah, a character they kind of wish had more to do because she's really yeah. the character who's why Dorothy is hired. She's like, Dorothy says things I can't say. I want this character in a, in, a, in the show, in a show that seems actually pretty badly written because when yeah. you look at the cue cards that Dustin Hoffman is ignoring, most of them are about a man has done something bad and his female character is supposed to be think about his point of view and over and over again and i will say that what you get from her without a lot of words is the reaction of her face and she really does give you a lot without a lot of dialogue i it, and again it's somebody that i know and i was like oh it's her um but let's talk about the king of this supporting character mountain is bill murray i mean bill <laughs> murray uncredited because he thought it would be a fun practical joke not to be credited for this film that he'd be in it and from the moment you see him, from moment one, it's so, like, familiar, fun Bill Murray that I know that you're trying to write this idea that he's, like, a playwright and he, he's, like, lofty. But he's so damn, like, likable and you want to see him. And I, I don't know. I love Bill Murray in this movie. Most of his part is improvised. And you can kind of see it because every one of Bill Murray's performances in this era feel about the same. I think you open up on him just eating French fries and talking to the chef and being like, you know, like they are, don't eat the food. And he's like, do I eat this food? Yeah, I eat the food. Cause I have to tell the people that I eat this food. Like he's doing these like fun little monologues. They like just clearly kept the camera running on him at the party where he's doing these monologues about how he wants to do a show for people who are soaking wet because that's <laughs> the people that are alive. He only wants to do a theater that's open on rainy days. He wants to do programs on like the suicide of the American Indian. I mean, yeah. he's incredibly pretentious. He's, he's great. really funny. Because he's the only character that seems outside of the world, that's inside the world. And he talked a lot about how it was – difficult because he and Dustin Hoffman would fight over stealing focus back and forth. And they had to kind of agree that Bill could do something very big and not be stealing focus because Bill Murray's like, I can't steal focus from you. You are a man dressed as a woman and you're Dustin Hoffman dressed as a woman. Anything I do will never be bigger than you. And and he said that once Dustin Hoffman wrapped his mind around that and like trusted him, these scenes started to flow. And I pulled this like little clip about uh, Bill Murray. This is like uh, he was doing a GQ shoot, and he just seemed to be talking off the cuff about Tootsie and sort of about how he figured out how to work with Dustin. But again, going back to how Sidney Pollock and Dustin Hoffman were working, they didn't quite understand what they had. 
you know, we had an understanding after the first set of rehearsal that was like, you know, there's a way you can make a scene completely all about the other person. You know, and by the fourth time, it was like, I made it all really about him. And he went, okay, let's do one more. And then we did it, and it was completely even-handed because that's the way he knew it was supposed to be. But he really had to know that I, he could trust me. So every scene from then, I would, be, I would be doing these terrible upstaging things, which ordinarily people would consider upstaging. But because you can't upstage a, like a man in panties and a girdle, or, you know, and a bra, you know, and you could do anything. I left the movie and I came back to visit like a couple weeks later, and there they were, they were fighting at it all over again. And I had this sort of um, Walter Houston moment. You know that moment in Treasure Sierra Madre where he's like dancing on it? It's right under your feet, you don't even see it. You're standing right on top of it, you don't even see it. Because I was like, you don't even know how good this movie is, you guys are just a couple of bozos. This is so good, you have no idea. Even when they're fighting, you look at the scene and go, this is amazing, this is amazing. I just thought that was oh an interesting... Oh my God. I, I thought it was great to kind of call back Treasure of Sierra Madre. Everything is kind of circling back on each other. And then also just the idea that like, the two people who were so forefront, the director and the star, didn't know what they were really making, but they were doing it. They were making something great. I love that so, 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 so much. I mean, God, Walter Houston has the touchstone for everything. I mean, what if somebody bars in the studio right now? They're like, well, you guys don't even know your podcast. It's going to change history. Wait, that, that becomes more back to the future. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> That's Doc Brown, but it's still a good, it's still a good old man. Amy, we've been talking a lot about... Um, what it's like to take on a different persona, to you know transform from a man to a woman. And we thought maybe it would be interesting to talk to someone who has a similar experience, not the exact same experience. They're not passing themselves off, but we wanted to talk to um, someone who works in the drag queen world. Uh, you may have seen our next uh, performer on RuPaul's Drag Race. They have an amazing podcast called Ghosted. So please welcome Roz Dressferles. We were talking about this idea, like, um, in this movie, they kind of treat uh, the way he becomes his female persona, I think, very respectfully, right? I mean, do you feel that way, too? Like, it wasn't done for jokes, I guess. Yeah, you know, that's what I think, um, watching it. I've watched it over the past couple of years, and there's, of all the movies where we see characters going undercover as a different gender or different race or different age, I think it is done in a respectful way. Um, but that being said, I mean, I definitely think that the intentions were good for the film as a whole. But I, I think what often comes up in feminist discussions about it is that it's like a man had to... Yes. Be the one voicing. It takes a strong man to to represent like a a good woman. (laughs) Yeah. So there certainly are problems, I think. But I've seen way worse. (laughs) I've seen way worse. I'm I'm a film critic, and part of what I find really interesting about film criticism, especially going back and reading old reviews, is you really get a sense of how like words change, thoughts change, our understanding of things change, like. I'm kind of curious to ask you, like, what are we talking about when we're talking about Tootsie? Like, when I would read the first reviews of Tootsie, a lot of critics called him a transvestite. And now I sometimes see critics refer to him as trans. I see so many words on this character. What words would you use? Yeah, that's kind of a complicated thing because he's 
doing it for a certain motivation, which is to get acting work, which, God, don't we all know that kind of actor? That would be <laughs> such a thing. I don't necessarily know that it's like a lifestyle that he is actually living other than that. I, I think usually the word transvestite is used as yeah, a man that dresses like a woman for some kind of thrill in life, um, whether it's a sexual thing or it's just something that they feel comfortable with, not necessarily um, identifying as uh, the opposite gender. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't necessarily know what to call what he's doing. Cause he's certainly not like a drag queen necessarily because he's straight up just trying to fool people. Usually a drag queen is for um, entertainment purposes. Uh, but gosh, it, it gets more and more difficult <laughs> as time goes on. Well, I mean, um, could you uh, could you even argue it's personal in a way? Because like for each person, they could want it to mean something different in a way. Like, you know, it's like there isn't totally. just – yeah. You know, I think a lot of times people believe that drag queens, the whole point is who can look the most like a woman – and that's the whole idea of female illusion, which is a huge part of drag. And there's many, many drag queens that that is the goal. But with me, I identify as a man and um, I love women and I celebrate women. And I never claim to know the experience of a woman or claim to be a woman or make fun of women. I basically am just a, uh, a hyper feminine version of myself like I'm kind of always the same silly character I just um, when I perform I definitely channel the feminine sides within me to um, I guess it's sort of a jumping off point uh, just the the image of me with a big wig and and fun jewelry and flashy clothes it's not necessarily me trying to impersonate women um, but it is definitely a celebration of femininity as a whole. So it is different for many different people because there's a lot of drag queens that wouldn't say that. They would just say, no, I'm trying to look just like a lady. You've probably seen the interviews that Dustin Hoffman did um, years later when he talks about his experience and um, the way that women, or the way he felt being treated as a woman, uh, presenting as a woman. And uh, that is something that I like about this movie a little bit is that they show just how gross the men are. And I mean, it is a certain kind of 1980s scumbag that yeah. you know, comes on to very aggressive. But some of that, that doesn't change. I mean, there is a lot of that still to this day. And I find myself in a lot of uh, creepy situations. And it has really given me um, a little bit of an insight into what a lot of women go through. Like when I have on high heels and a short skirt and I'm walking down the street going to the gig and I've had some creepy ass men. And, you know, again, I'll never know what it's like to be a woman, but just to see that vulnerability, um, it's like, I'm glad that he got to experience that. The character got to see what that's like. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm so fascinated about how in that same interview, he talks about imagining what he would look like 
if he put on all the makeup of being a woman and thinking he'd be, you know, this total hot babe and then realizing what he actually did look like as a woman and sort of being like, oh, okay. I mean, that that idea of first seeing what you look like in makeup. I mean, do you remember what that was like for you? Well, yeah, because I ended up being a hot babe. <laughs> yeah, uh, you did. You definitely did. Yeah, I think that the character, and I think him as an actor too saw that you really get in touch with a different side of yourself and you say things that you, you may have been too afraid to say or you couldn't say or do when you transform into another person. Well, I wanted to ask you about kind of coming up with your persona because like, you know, what we see or I guess what's given a little bit of short shrift in this film is you see one scene in the agent's office and like no one will hire you and then the cuts to him fully uh, as Dorothy Michaels, and you don't really see how he, you know, became this character. And I think as the film goes on, he gets more and more into that character. But how is it for you? Like, you know, how is it to find this other personality? Well, I think it's always in there. Um, I always think it's so funny in these kind of movies where it's like, wow, this like person that has no makeup experience can just do, I mean, this one at least isn't like <laughs> Mrs. Doubtfire or White Chicks, where it's like, wow, you could do full-on movie status uh, prosthetic work in 15 <laughs> seconds. And I love, like, even there's a scene, I think, in this movie where he's, like, kind of styling the wig. And I'm like, I've been doing this for a long time, and I don't even know how to style a wig. So good for him. <laughs> but, um, and I think I think it really is inside of you. And I think it, it was inside of his character this whole time. I mean, I wonder, like, you are, you also have dark hair. Like, Dustin Hoffman talks so much about the problem of stubble. Like, how big of a problem is stubble? Uh, and I'm wondering, like, has makeup for stubble improved <laughs> since the 80s? Well, okay, here's a little insider trick. Um, you have to color correct. Now, I'm not a makeup artist so I, don't, I think it's different with people's different skin tones and hair tones. But for me, my hair is like black. And so I there's sort of a blue undertone in, in the blackness of my hair. So to cancel that out, I actually have to put down orange makeup after I shave over my beard. And then I put on my foundation. And somehow, some way, some science, some art, I don't know. But it uh, makes the beard disappears I mean, as best as I can. Yeah, I, I mean, apparently he figured that one out without any makeup training. <laughs> <laughs> well, so you said that Tootsie is a big film for you. I mean, what are your first memories of seeing it? How old were you? Well, I grew up in the 90s, and uh, I think that when I started seeing movies was around the kind of drag boom of the early mid nineties and we had movies like Chi Wong Fu and, and Mrs. Doubtfire and I used to like I literally used to come to dinner with my family with a towel wrapped around my head. It was my wig and my my um glasses that were sunglasses with the things popped out and I would say I was because I mean that movie had already been out and so like, right. I kind of um I think probably my parents were like, well, for some reason he really likes these movies where the men dress like women. Isn't that <laughs> silly? We don't know what that could mean, but it seems funny. This has been great talking to you. Can you tell us a little bit about your podcast? So your podcast doesn't deal with uh, the world that we know. It kind of goes into the world of supernatural. <laughs> the, the idea of the show is it's a ghost story show. So it's essentially my favorite TV show of all time, which is Celebrity Ghost Stories. Uh, Amazing. But we 
uh, give it a little sense of humor. We play a fun little game where I find uh, voices that people have caught of ghosts on YouTube, and I make my guests try to guess what the ghost is saying. By the way, and I've had know, a situation kind of- where I have a recording of a ghost. I went on a ghost tour uh-huh. in New Orleans, and I was there. It happened. It was crazy. We tried it three times. I got it on the second time. The third time didn't work. It was pretty amazing. You're going to have to go on the show, Paul. Okay. Uh, <laughs> You're going to have to come on my show, and that's called EVP, Electronic yes. Voice Phenomenon. And my game is called EVPs or EV Please. <laughs> and you're going to have to come on, and we're going to have to reverse it where I okay. have to guess what it is. I like. would love that. Um, so, yeah, I've been doing the show since February, and we've had some really crazy fun, uh, all different kinds of ghosts, very scary ones, sort of touching stories. We just had our first person have sex with a ghost story. My number one idol, Cassandra Peterson, was just on the show, a.k.a. Elvira, Mistress of the Dark. Oh, my goodness. Um, so we're having all kinds of people, all comics, regular everyday people that live next door that have had ghost stories. If you got a ghost story, I want to hear about I it. I love this. <laughs> I'm on board. The show is called Ghosted. Uh, Roz, it's been fantastic to talk to you about everything here. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. All right, bye-bye. It is wedding season, and here I am doing a Black Tux ad from the female point of view because – Oh my God, I got weddings coming. Oh my God, I know that I'm going to look good. I want the dude I'm with to look amazing. And that is why blacktux.com exists. It is for a guy who's like, okay, I will put on a suit. Don't want to buy one, but let me pick out something awesome. And I can be like, yeah, let's pick out this fun thing. Oh, let's get rad. Oh, come on. Let's have some fun, baby. Get something that matches me. That is what class is, man. So classy. So blacktux.com, it has this really easy online ordering process. It brings your suit or tuxedo straight to you. You can just pick a style at blacktux.com and then you can request a free home try-on. So you can feel how it fits. You can see how it fits on your body. You can see, like, touch the fabric, be like, do I like this? I can touch the fabric and be like, yeah, I like that before you commit to your tuxedo. They also have showrooms all over the country. So you can just even go in there, find your fit, plan your look, get it all set, and then have it sent to your house whenever you want it, whenever you're ready. They will ship your order two weeks before the wedding so you can check it out one last time. That's right, I said your wedding because if you're a groom, you also need to make sure you look super, super, super sharp. Do you have any idea how many pictures are going to be taken of you? You probably do if it's this close to your wedding and you're really thinking about it. It's going to be nuts. You're going to have a hashtag. And when people look at that hashtag, don't you want to look amazing in that hashtag? And if you're the guest in all those pictures, don't you want to look awesome? I mean, everybody's going to look awesome. We're all upping our game here. This is a fashionable, fashionable summer. Are you ready for it? You're going to be ready for it. Because Black Tux has over 5,000 five-star reviews. That is a ton. You will not find experience or designs like the ones you're going to find there. So... If you want to rent your tux right now, or if you want to kind of elbow your darling to get their tux because you know what's coming, because you know it's like your best friend from college's wedding, and you're like, come on, man, make me look good, go to theblacktux.com, and you can enjoy $20 off your purchase with the code UNSPOOLED. That's theblacktux.com, code UNSPOOLED for $20 off your purchase. Sit down, pick out some stuff, say what you're wearing, say what you want them to wear, say, hey, let's find something we both like. Pick this out together and look like the best couple in the planet. Have fun. Did you know this movie was actually rated R? Really? Yes. And Sidney Pollack appealed and was successful to get it to be a PG rating. I don't understand what they could have objected to. I mean, maybe 
it was the idea of dressing as a woman. I, I, I don't know. But there wasn't a PG-13 at the time. So it was a sort of PG and R. And maybe it was adult subject matter. But there's not much cursing in the film. And there's uh, not even any nudity. I mean, bra. I mean, you know, Gene Davis is in a bra on it. Uh, but it, it's a pretty tame film. And I'm so glad they got it knocked down to an R. And you understand, like, if it was... PG, that's why everyone went to go see it. And it's important this movie is PG because this movie comes in right behind E.T. as the number two film of the year. This is like everyone saw Tootsie. This is a as big of a hit you can possibly make. Yeah, I mean, it is wild what a huge hit this was. There was a ton of press about it. Like when you look at the original articles at the time, like everything that everybody is talking about is what it took for Dustin Hoffman to get ready. Right. You know, he spent four years basically trying to diet so that his arms would be, would be slender enough that he could pass for a right. woman. He shaved his hands every single day. They tried a bunch of stuff for, to get the boobs right. Like one of the things they tried was um, bird food and condoms. Oh, and then they realized that bird food and condoms made way too much noise on the microphones. I mean. I love, like, some of the stories from this period, like when Dustin Hoffman put on his whole, his whole outfit, and then he went and he tried to hit on John Voight. What? <laughs> oh, my God. And John Voight totally ignored him, and Dustin Hoffman at the time, and in our interview, was like, men are shits. Yeah. Like, well, yes, yes. But then also, there are some stories of, like, Dustin Hoffman on the set, like, he would, between takes, run up and down the hallways, and, like, once he grabbed a woman and he forced her to the floor like he was going to rape her, and he started joking about how she'd only been married to a, man, a month for a guy with a 38 special. So you knew what it was going to cost him to attack her that right. way. But, you know, that's him. He would also just, like, walk up to women on set and tell them that they'd make terrific babies together. Well, by the way, I want to say that, I mean, as we're talking about it, that documentary that I played you earlier where Sidney Pollack is so kind of truthful about their relationship – uh, there's a clip where Dustin Hoffman's with uh, Jessica Lang, like walking into the house and he gooses her as they walk what? into the house. Yeah, It's like right there. It's like not even hidden. And they're both laughing and having a good time. Um, but, uh, I mean, <laughs> oh, yeah. look, we're talking about complicated people in a time, you know, and it's like, and by the way, what is so funny about that? When I saw that. It was like, this is a movie where you're talking about how that's not right. I know. <laughs> But I think what it comes down to, again, is the delivery system of this. It is, you know, if we're going to go with Terry Garr's opinion of it, like these are, you know, sexist men that are making this movie. You know, they're trying in their own way to shine a light on something. And, you know, this movie wouldn't have been made or but I guess I you can't say that because nine to five is made you know in the scene yeah, right uh, before yeah right before so I mean, I mean what Dustin Hoffman says rape is not a laughing matter he actually deserves that line legitimately mm -hmm. like that's a legitimately awful scene that happens in a lot of 80s comedies yeah and it's a real reaction I mean to me that's one of the more honest moments in the scene and also how that scene ends with uh, George Gaines, who, of course, I adore because I'm like a gigantic oh, fan. fan. No, no. Oh. I, I mean, I'm a police academy girl. Oh, okay. And so, like, it ends with him apologizing first to Bill Murray, which also seems so true yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and awful. It's, like, weird. I mean, this movie is weird. There's, like, when he goes to the farm to, like, hang out with Jessica Lange and her dad, there's, like, this montage that you've seen a million movies, the falling in love montage of yeah. people in, like, the woods and trees and grass and the music and the, I mean, my God, it's this song, which is just, like, the karaoke nightmare. I mean, Amy, this, I mean, is, this is what I'm saying. This is like the 80s to 
uh, like the nth degree. This song. like this. Yes. There's yes. so many versions of okay. this song and transition music. Yes, but what I'm trying to get at is like this is a montage that is a incredibly basic, mm-hmm. but also incredibly weird. Like because you're watching this falling in love montage and you're like, who's falling in love with who? It's like the dad falling in love with her, but him also falling in love with Jessica Lang. And he it's stares like at her. It's a lot of weird love. Oh no. Also, maybe other female friends like stick batter in their friend's mouth with their thumb. I haven't done that. I get a little bit gross. Maybe I'm a weirdo. Uh, but- Amy, I'm gonna say something that's gonna upset you. What is this? The Green Book of 1982. Because it it does, it takes a thorny subject and makes it very palatable. It kind of smooths out all the rough edges. And it's a huge hit. It's a huge hit at the Oscars. I mean, okay, then here's the next level of that question. If it is the Green Book, is that so wrong? Like, did this movie shift anybody's attitude? If that many people saw Tootsie... Did anybody pinch asses a little bit less at the office? You would hope so. Or or the kids who watched it, did they grow up thinking a little bit differently? Maybe you're not changing the people who are adults, but you're changing the people who grow up into the world. I mean, Dustin Hoffman kept pinching asses. So it's hard for me to imagine it did that mm. much. I mean, maybe this did open up the next generation. I mean, we're we're that next generation. We are that next like, generation. I, don't, I didn't see this movie then. No, and I think but... that there is something, you know, that is universal about it and it – I think sometimes when you want to deliver a message, it's better not to be preachy. It's more fun to be entertaining. And I do think that this movie does do that. That's true. What if movies are sort of like time delay bombs? Like, yeah. is it possible for a movie to be a huge success that actually doesn't really surface for decades? Right. When like the young kids are just like, yeah, this is a normal way. This is like... I don't see that the joke is a man in the dress. I see that the joke is actually really on the sexist men around the man in the dress. And I do believe that he's not making Dorothy a joke. And that's what no, I'm talking about. Not like, at it's all. it's not, not, at not all. Yeah. bosom buddies. It's not. And I would even say that Mrs. Doubtfire is more a man in a dress than it is. Yeah, I think that when they're when they're talking about sexism in this movie, like I love that moment where she comes out to get the cab. It's a, one of the classic scenes of the film where she's like, taxi, taxi. And she's like, taxi. And the car stops. And it's like, oh, it's just showing like there are, you know, I, I like, like that's a funny way to show the, the the subtle differences. And I think that the movie does do a good job of of that. And you Yeah, know, I mean, moments like that made me laugh. It, this is not an intended joke of this yeah. line, but in the grand history of, like, these type of characters and how they go, there was a line here when Dustin Hoffman is trying to give the hard sell to his agent of all the different parts he could play as Dorothy. I am Dorothy. Dorothy is me. Nobody's writing that part. It's coming out of me. You are Michael. You're acting, Dorothy. It's a stank thing. There's a woman in me. I'm experiencing Let's these feelings. Away with this. Why can't you get me a special? Please, I could sing as Dorothy. I could do some monologues. I feel I have something to say to women. Something Listen to me, meaningful. Michael. You have nothing to say to women. That's not true. I have plenty to say to women. I've been an unemployed actor for 20 years, George. You know that. I know what it's like to sit by the phone waiting for it, waiting for it to ring. And when I finally get a job, I have no control. Everybody else has the power and I got zipped. If I could impart that experience to other women like me... you got to listen to me, Michael. There are no other women like you. You're a man. Yes, I realize that, of course. But I'm also an actress. Michael, I don't think we should argue about this. I mean, really. A potentially great actress. I could do Medea. I could do Ophelia. Right. I could do Lady Macbeth. Just <laughs> was like a, did it was just, it was the I could do Medea. Because I was like, that actually is a Medea joke. A woman being like, I will hit you with my purse. Well, I am. I am. The joke is that I'm like a woman who will ball bust you. It's so funny because I was watching that. And I think that this is a... 
in a moment in that movie, and this is I wrote down last night, I feel like this movie going, no, no, you're not a woman. And it, how dare you say that you're a woman? You're you're doing this. This is not right. And, and, and it's think, also saying what I think this movie thinks of women, which is that this movie, or at least Dustin Hoffman, thinks of women as pathetic. Yes. That women are getting dumped by men all the time in their life, that they're getting pushed around by the men in their life. And he gets it because he's an actor who's been, been rejected. Exactly. That his formative opinion of what a woman is is somebody who gets rejected by him, honestly. Exactly. But so maybe to to kind of undercut what I, my original thought was, he does learn something because – where he finally goes is, I can't be this person anymore. I'm not going to be this person anymore because it's not truthful to who I am and it's not respectful of who she is. And I think that that's actually important because here in this moment, he's like, I am, I am, I am. We are one. I am an actress. You're not. You're this guy who just wants the fame and attention and success. So maybe the character does arc a little bit more than I gave it credit for. Maybe a little bit. I mean, we'll see. Like, I mean, if if his prize is like, I do not reject you, women. I mean, we don't really see that. He's no. still like, I love you, Jessica Lang. But we don't really know how this movie ends. I mean, we were thinking it's like a City Lights ending ish. Yeah. Because do they wind up together? Do they not? Like, right. I think they don't. Right. But he's oh, wow. linking her arm as they're walking on the sidewalk. I think I think they do. I mean, I feel like again, you think they do, and I think they don't. Yeah. Well, because I feel like well, there's two ways of looking at it. We can look at it your way. If you think they don't, then you should de- think that they do because she said she always makes the wrong – she makes – she <laughs> examines all the right guys and finds the one to make the worst mistake with. So that would be Dustin Hoffman in your yeah, point A guy who stalks her, drives to her dad's house to try to like get yeah. her to forgive him. Um, a guy who like lied to her forever. But I do feel like the relationship that they had in the show was not purely about him trying to get into her pants and i think he was befriending her i think he was giving her good advice yes did he want to date her was he attracted to her sure 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 but i don't think it was all about it's not like don't tell her it's me the steve gutenberg film where he plays like an australian motorcycle guy and the nerdy steve gutenberg character the movie that everyone gets the reference to um but i mean like it's not just like i'm doing this and i'm going to do this he only kind of plays that one moment once you know he realizes it doesn't really work i don't know i feel like they're their friendship is a genuine one. I don't think it's all based in like him just wanting to get in her pants. Yeah, probably not like fundamentally. Right, not fundamentally. Although to get there, the movie does have to pretend that like a young woman has no friends or other options. Sure. Okay. I buy that too. <laughs> um, Amy, this movie we said is a tremendous success uh, commercially and uh, critically. Were there any bad reviews? There were actually. Um, here's one from Meryl Schindler who wrote this review for Los Angeles Magazine. And she kind of takes an interesting stance on why she had a quibble with this movie. She says, notice how the ambiance, the whole darn space of the film changes every time Bill Murray comes on the scene. I think Murray is the best thing in Tootsie simply because in his near infinite weirdness, he is much more real than any of the other characters. That Hoffman, says Meryl, went way too far in becoming Dorothy Michaels, to the detriment of the film, is her argument. Um, She says, this is supposed to be a man pretending to act like a woman. Instead, Hoffman is more of a woman than any other woman in the film. That his gestures are perfect, absolutely seamless, and that he even twitters when there's no need to. And that he goes far beyond La Caja Folie, 
which means that his perfection seems to work against the basic thesis of the plot, says Merrill, of a man playing at being a woman, because there's something too unreal about purity without a blemish, and that the problem with Tootsie is this irony that Hoffman is too good at doing what he does, and his perfection puts a chill on the entire film, and that Dis- it needs more uh, Bill Murray with all his warts to bring it down to earth. Disagree heartily. Heartily disagree, because I think what she's talking about is more of a straightforward comedy. I think she's talking about bosom buddies, a lot of crotch-grabbing, boob-reorganizing, like, oh, 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 I mean, hello, you know. like. And I think this movie- There's a bit of wedgies there, here. There, there's some wedgies, there's some voice cracking, but I don't know, I, I feel like Bill Murray is engaging, he's always engaging, but it also would argue- against her point, which is Bill Murray almost feels like the one character that doesn't really even exist in this world. Like, it's like, he's kind of off. Like, if Bill Murray wasn't in this movie, it wouldn't make a difference. That he is in this movie is wonderful. But he has no no thing to play to the plot. It, it's it's just, I you mean, yes. You could take him out in a millisecond. Yeah, I mean, that's I mean, why it doesn't surprise me that Elaine May added him at the end. Yeah, it just sort of, it just adds another level to it. Um, I was going to ask you a question as a journalist, and you are a good journalist. What do you think about the journalism standards of this film that she, uh, she was on the cover of, at least by my count, like four or five magazines, and no one was able to do any backstory research for her at, at all? <laughs> I mean, th- th- this seems like a real error in uh, journalistic integrity. Yeah, it's the Theranos of Tootsie. <laughs> <laughs> Why does this person have a weird voice? We can't get to the bottom of it. What's going on? By the way, I also pulled one other clip from a positive review just mm-hmm. because it amused me because this is Andrew Saris, a really highfalutin yeah. critic who we've talked about before here predicting what film would be in the year 2022. So I just had to read this for you. Andrew Sarah says, As I gaze into my crystal ball, I see the November-December issue of Film Comment for the year 2022. On the cover is Brooke Shields in costume as Queen Victoria in Steven Spielberg's spectacularly successful resurrection of the historical genre. And he imagines that Hollywood is being shaped by agents who grew up watching Tootsie. And he says that they are familiar from Tootsie from frequent showings on their Japanese wrist satellite cable screens. So there's a few things going not there. I was bad, like, not bad, not okay. bad. Steven Spielberg still making big Movies, historical yes. pictures. Yes, check. Uh, Brooke Shields is Queen Victoria. Eh. Well, on the cover of Film Comment yeah. this week, it's it's uh, Robert Pattinson talking about the Claire Dennis film that he made for A24. So there's a there's something. <laughs> and the idea that like agents are walking around watching things on Japanese wrist satellite cable screens. Yeah. Yeah. Not bad, not bad. I mean, it's right, it's right. Yeah, no, you don't really think of film critics as future predictors, more like past uh, explanators, <laughs> to make up a word. Uh, but not bad, Cyrus. Um, now, Amy, we talk about it every single week. I'm guessing, I know Dustin Hoffman was on The Simpsons, but I wonder, it's hard probably to parse an exact Tootsie reference from The Simpsons. That's my going to be my guess because there's so many... Uh, men dressing as women kind of tropes. So, but I'm going to ask it, is there a direct Tootsie reference on The Simpsons? I would say yes-ish. Yes. Okay. I'm going to go with a yes. Because there is a Simpsons episode called Pygmalion. Okay. Now, what Pygmalion is about is Mo is upset that he's ugly. So he gets plastic surgery. Mo gets plastic surgery. He becomes incredibly handsome. And when he gets incredibly handsome, he gets a role on a daily soap opera. Dun, 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 dun. And then when he gets upset at his soap opera, he gets himself kicked off with a spectacular live on-screen meltdown a la How Dorothy Leaves the Show. I never used to trust you, Contessa, but now you seem so nice. Why don't we celebrate your newfound trust in me 
by taking a skydiving lesson. Well, how could I say no to such a captivating... Ding dong! Whoa, it's the door! Dr. Winslow! Why, who are you? I am an angel from the future. Angel? What the f***? Should I cut him off? No. Let's see where this is going. And what do you have to tell us, oh, angel of the future? You're going to die in a skydiving accident. How tragic. Tell me more. Gabriella's baby shower will be invaded by terrorists. With sexy <gasps> and then I, Mo ruins the entire rest of the soap opera for the rest of the year. I do like that, and I do feel like that the the character... Uh, the of the like the producer of the show is very much like the character from uh, Tootsie. Yeah, I feel like there is kind of a line, a line of reinvention. So I'm going to yes. count it as a yes. I love it. Um, okay, so Amy, the question is, and I don't know where you're going to fall on this. Does this film belong on the list? Nah. Nah. That was it. I didn't have to pause on that one. Wow. Yeah, I just feel like this film is fine. I respect that it was a big deal. Mm-hmm. Honestly, I think. World According to Garp is actually, I, I would find a much more interesting look on gender and sexism and everything insane happening in 1982. Right. I think that film is really fascinating. I would pick it for that if I had to go one-to-one of like films questioning what gender is in 1982. But honestly, I just think Tootsie is kind of interesting to talk about, but really mediocre to look at. I don't think it's that beautifully shot of a film. I don't think it's that well put together. I think it's well acted, you know, but yeah. I think this film is just fine. You know, I really, really enjoyed watching this film. Like, unequivocally sat back, just laughed, felt kind of uh, totally caught up in it. But if we are talking about the 100 best films, I don't know if we need it. I feel like it's a movie that we talk about this a lot. Like, it's a sign of the times. It was popular. It was big. So it's put on the list. And it doesn't mean it's bad. It doesn't mean it's bad by in, in, the, in, in any margin. It's it's completely, it's it's like an 80s comedy. It, it's got a lot of energy. But I think they're probably, if we're talking about thematically, I think there's better movies out there. We talk about A League of Their Own. Oh, I'd love, if we're going to have a Gina Davis movie, I'd love right. A League of Her Own. You know, I think there are different points of view to be put on this list and I know it's all just about like diversity and stuff like that but I think that this if we just talk about the subject of this film I think there are other movies out there that may do it better than this I mean honestly if we're going to talk about a movie where men learn a little something by putting on a dress and also hang out with a bubbly blonde Some Like It Hot is already on this list Mm. at 22 so you know I'm at peace take it off get rid of Tootsie boom All right, the question is now to you does it belong on the list? We're going to check out the Facebook group, and we're going to check out our Earwolf message boards. Um, now we've given up the die, Amy, as we're coming into the second half of our uh, the final 50 films. We're not up to 50 yet, but we're almost there. We're at 48. Next week, we'll be talking about Silence of the Lambs. And wow, I, we're going from dress to dress. Wasn't <laughs> human dress, skin dress, <laughs> uh, Halston from Halston to a skin dress. Um, oh, I'd love a real Halston. I don't, uh, I don't need a skin dress, or do I? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So next week, what we want to do is hear your best uh, Hannibal Lecter impressions. Now, Hannibal Lecter, you know, made cannibalism a little bit appealing by saying that he wanted to put some fava beans uh, and a nice Chianti with your human body. Why don't we list what you would like for dinner and create a awesome 
a final meal, maybe a final meal that you would like to have, and we'll kind of splice them together to create one amazing final meal. Do it in your best Hannibal Lecter impersonation. Yes, though. of course, yes, of course. And you can call us at 747-666-5824. That's 747-666-5824. Let us hear you in your best Hannibal Lecter impersonation ordering dinner. This is Arnie Niekamp from the Improv Fantasy Podcast, Hello from the Magic Tavern. I fell through a dimensional portal behind a Burger King in Chicago into the magical land of Foon, and I started a podcast. Season three has just begun with a brand new adventure to defeat the Dark Lord. If you're a new listener or you've fallen behind, season three is a great jumping on point. And we've got great guests like Justin McElroy. I sound like a fancy college professor. Eight nights. <laughs> Rachel Bloom. You all see my collection of men corpses and one woman. Felicia Day and Colton Dunn. You've seen <coughs> me have intercourse with a variety of species. It's a bummer. Andy Daly. You have the members of Genesis listed, but Phil Collins yeah. has crossed out and then circled and crossed out again. Uh, yes, I have killed Phil Collins twice. Thomas Middleditch. <laughs> oh, Jesus. I mean, Jazos. <laughs> ruler of the eighth circle. And that's just the beginning. Season three of Hello from the Magic Tavern is out now. Listen in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.